Good morning to you. I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Romans, and I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in chapter 3, verse 21. Again, that is the book of Romans, and I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 21, and go to verse 31, which will bring us to the end of this chapter. And so please hear the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now for one last time, I invite you to follow me into God's tribunal. I do promise this is the last time. We are standing in God's courtroom. We are on trial. We hear the charge, all have suppressed the truth. We hear the testimony, all are without excuse. We hear the verdict, all are under sin. We hear the sentence, all are the object of God's wrath. And we stand in stunned Silence. But then we hear those precious words right at the outset of verse 21, but now. God speaks. The judge speaks. And in effect, this is what he says. Please, oh, I pray the Spirit of God burns this upon your mind and heart. God speaks. I am willing to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. I am willing to change the sentence from death to life. I am willing to declare you righteous instead of unrighteous. The obvious question, the question of the moment is, How? 
And we have the answer to that question in verses 21 through 26. Again, it consists of three essential components. And again, I pray that the Spirit of God burns this upon our minds and our hearts. Component number one, this change in our legal status comes through faith. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, there is nothing we do to alter this legal status. There is nothing we do to change the judge's verdict. There is nothing we do to earn it. There is nothing we do to merit it. We simply receive it. We simply accept it. It comes through faith. Component number two. This change in our legal status comes by grace. Look at the end of verse 22. There is no distinction. Verse 23. For all have sinned. That's us. We're under sin. And all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Freely, as the King James Version articulates it. It is the same word, as I mentioned, used back in John's gospel, where the Lord Jesus proclaimed, they persecuted me without a cause. Take that phrase and insert it in that verse, verse 24. We are justified by his grace without a cause. There is no cause in you. There is no cause in me. There is nothing in us that compels God to change our legal status from guilty to innocent. It is a gift. It comes by grace. The third component is this. This change in our legal status comes in Christ. Pick it up. Middle of the verse 24. Verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, verse 25, God put forward, that is displayed, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Our ver verdict is guilty. Christ bears that verdict. Our sentence is death. Christ bears that sentence. God displays Christ publicly as a propitiation by his blood. You put those three components together, and you have the doctrine of justification. Justification is by grace alone. Burn this on your mind while you're at it. Justification is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. And it is in Christ alone. That is Paul's essential point in these verses. God is willing to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. God is willing to change the sentence from death to life. God is willing to declare us who are unrighteous in his sight. He is willing to declare us righteous. How? 
This act, this judicial act in the tribunal of God is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. And it is in Christ alone. That is why Martin Luther, centuries ago, he declared this. Here is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It led John Calvin to declare the following. This article, this truth, justification, is the hinge upon which everything turns. J.I. Packer, still with us, a contemporary, he compared the doctrine of justification to the mythological figure known as Atlas. That might seem odd. Stay with me. Atlas? Well, yes, in Greek mythology, what did Atlas do? He was responsible for holding up the world. That's Packer's point. The doctrine of justification is the truth upon which all of Christianity rests. If Atlas were to shrug, the world falls. If we lose justification, Christianity crumbles. There's nothing left. It is the pillar, it is the anchor, it is the foundation, it is the rock. Use whatever metaphor you like, I think you're getting it. This is of utmost importance. And it is why, returning to last Sunday, why James Montgomery Boyce and others refer to these verses as the single most important passage of Scripture. Which means what? These words, verses 21 through 26 are the most important words ever penned in the history of humanity. Now, Paul draws three deductions, three implications. We find them beginning in verse 27 through to the end of the chapter, as far as I read, verse 31. Three deductions. The first is this, deduction number one. If this is true, okay, since it is true, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, deduction number one, that excludes boasting. Look at what he says in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. He is hearkening back. To chapter 2, flip back there with me just for a moment, verse 23. And look at what we read back in chapter 2, verse 23. Paul is addressing the Jews, you who boast in the law. And so you, poor, semi-delusional people, who think you can actually obey the law, who think... Your standing before God is actually dependent, contingent upon what you do. You, you're so sorely confused, unbelievably bewildered people who think you will stand on the judgment day before a holy God and you will make a claim to something you have done, something you are that will separate you from the rest of the masses and somehow endear you to God. Oh no, understand. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is of grace. And to drive that home, 
What does Paul do at the end of verse 27? He speaks of a law of works. That is a principle of works. He speaks of the law of faith. That is a principle of faith. Works are meritorious. Faith isn't meritorious. It is simply receiving. How are we justified? We are not justified by our works because of what we have done or we're going to do. We are justified by that is through faith. And he hammers it. He drives it home in verse 28. For we hold. Here's what we affirm, what we declare. That one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I watched a video this past week. Josh Moody, who spoke at our conference a couple of weekends ago, sent it. And uh, the video was downright hokey. I mean corny. Just a hokey video. But it almost had me in tears. In this video, there is this, I think it was made in someone's garage. Just a shambles. You have these two men dressed in white. They are angels at heaven's gate. And there's this huge scale called a uh, good ometer. Good ometer. And these two angels dressed in white, big cherub smiles on their faces, and, and a line of maybe 12, 15 people holding a book. And then there's this man, the Christ figure, standing over there, this, this young fellow with a T-shirt, I am Jesus. I told you it was corny. I mean, just hokey. Here it is. And this line of people begin to filter through heaven's gates, and they bring their book, and green pages, good things they've done, they think they've done, red pages, bad things they've done, and they hand it over one by one, and the book is put on the scale. The dial never moves. One after another, it never moves. It doesn't matter how many red pages there are, how many green pages there are, the dial never moves. I'm about to turn this thing off. I got email to check. I got work to do. But I said, no, I'll stick through with it to the end. The very last guy walks up. Then the guy dressed in the Jesus t-shirt says, oh, this one's mine. And do you know what he does? He stands on the scale. And it goes, no longer registers. The guy is standing there with his book. I've just packed stacks of red pages, red pages, red pages. Just a life of sin. And Jesus says, hold on, this one is mine. And Jesus himself stands on the scale. And here I am watching this video clip, which probably cost all of $5 to make. And the tears are beginning to form in the corner of my eyes because I said, here's a guy, although this is hokey, he gets it. He gets it. It is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Works. Do not enter the equation. The second deduction is this. Justification abolishes distinctions. Return with me. Verse 29. It's a question. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, this harkens back, turn with me to chapter 2, harkens all the way back to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17. Again, here he is speaking primarily to a Jewish audience. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, in other words, there are some of you 
There are people out there who actually think simply because I am a Jew, that means God is pleased with me. Simply because I'm a Jew, that means I'm one of God's chosen people. Simply because I I am a Jew in terms of my ethnicity and I'm circumcised and I get really excited about the law of Moses, that means that I am one of God's favored ones. Paul goes after them here in verses 29 through 30. And he said, nothing could be farther from the truth. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There are no distinguishing marks. There are no distinguishing features. There are nothing distinguishing about individuals that sets one apart over another, somehow endearing themselves to God. No, God is one. He is the creator of humanity, Jews and Gentiles. And when it comes to God and when it comes to judgment, there is no distinction. All are under sin and there is nothing that differentiates one from another. Look what he adds in verse 30. He will justify the circumcised, that is the Jew, by faith. And the uncircumcised, that is the Gentile, through faith. We need to hear that today. We need to be reminded of that today. I encourage you, if ever you visit the beautiful city of Toronto, you take a trip of what is called the CN Tower. Don't bother if it's a cloudy day, foggy day, a dreary, drizzly day. Don't bother because you won't be able to see anything. But if it's a clear day, I encourage you, pay the extortionate price and take the trip up the CN Tower. You can see on a clear day, you can see Buffalo. Not the animals, Buffalo. The beautiful city of Buffalo. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But you can see that far. You can see as far as the eye can see. Miles and miles and miles and miles and miles all around. Here's the interesting thing. Here's where I'm going with this. As you purchase that ticket at the bottom, you'll find Toronto's a very ethnically diverse city. And you'll be standing in line and you'll hear people talking, speaking in Cantonese. You'll hear people speaking in, in, in Italian or Portuguese, other languages. You'll notice people with different ethnic features. Some people are tall, some are short, male, female, boys, girls, dressed differently. Distinctions, 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 distinctions all around you in this great melting pot known as the city of Toronto. You go up that CN Tower and there you get this beautiful view. You can see out through the glass and you peer down at that line of people still waiting to purchase their tickets so they can take their elevator up the CN Tower. And do you know what those people look like from that vantage point? Less significant than ants. And it is impossible to differentiate or distinguish one from another. Oh, how troubled I am. How worried I am. How concerned I am for the individual walking the face of the earth today who actually thinks there is something in them that sets them apart. You are delusional, and I say that with love, that there is something in them that somehow distinguishes them, differentiates them, sets them apart from the masses. When it comes to the judgment of God, there is no distinction. All are under sin. Therefore, there is only one hope, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is a third deduction. Verse 31. Justification establishes the law. It's a question. It begins with a question. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
And so they're referring to that law in the Old Testament, all of God's commands, right, which he gave to the nation of Israel. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? In other words, that law was kind of pointless. That law didn't serve any purpose at all. As a matter of fact, that law is kind of redundant. And what you're preaching now and what you're proclaiming now, well, it just kind of demolishes the law. And what's Paul's response? By no means. No, 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 no. You've misunderstood. On the contrary, the, the absolute contrary is true. We uphold the law. We uphold the law? I thought the law was my enemy. I thought, I thought the law was that boogeyman, just, I mean, just, just walking the face of the earth, and I fear and trepidation because it's the law that's against me. It's the law that condemns me. Truly, this glorious truth, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, abolishes and rids us of the law. Paul says the opposite. No, by no means. We actually uphold the law. Why? How is that possible? Listen carefully. The law makes two requirements. Only two requirements. That's it. We can summarize it in these two. Requirement number one is this. Here's what the law says to you. It says to me, you must obey me. That's requirement number one. You must obey me. And you must obey me perfectly. That's requirement number one. Here's requirement number two. Uh, you haven't obeyed me. Oh, you have failed miserably. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. The ways in which you have contradicted the law, the number of ways in which you disobey the law, I don't know where to begin. Here's what I now require. You must pay the penalty. And the penalty is death, condemnation. That's the law in a nutshell. That is what the law says. That is the law's twofold requirements. Number one, you must obey me perfectly. Number two, you have not obeyed me perfectly. Therefore, you must pay the penalty. We uphold the law. How do we uphold the law? We uphold it in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled both requirements. Requirement number one, you must obey me perfectly. The Lord Jesus has done that. The Lord Jesus obeyed every facet of the law. He fulfilled every iota of the law as he sojourned here on the face of the earth, loving his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And upon Calvary's cross, he paid the second requirement. He bore the curse of the law. He bore the penalty of the law. When I become one with Christ through faith, I'm made one with him. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm made one with him. Do you know what that means? It means I have fulfilled the law. Careful, easy, steady on. It means I have fulfilled the law. Not me in the flesh, but I am one with Christ who has fulfilled it for me. Therefore, as far as the judge is concerned, the law is fulfilled. The judge is just. The requirement does not change. You must obey me perfectly. The penalty does not change. You fail to obey me. Therefore, you must bear the curse. It does not change. We do not abolish that. We uphold it because Christ himself has fulfilled it. We need to hear that today. We need to be reminded of that today. It points us to many things. It points us in particular to the absolute uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, please, 
And I think 99.9% of you are in the choir, and I'm preaching to the choir, but for the potential 0.1%, whoever you are out there, I'm speaking to you, please. This points to the absolute uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other religion in the world, every other belief system in the world, I don't care if it's here in the States, anywhere around the world, you name it, research it, draw it up, do a documentary on it, I don't care. They all share something in common. Are you ready? None of them offers a savior. Not one. Go to any other religion in the world, any other philosophical system, any other belief system, anywhere. None of them offers a savior. Every other religion in the world, the basic underlying premise is what? You must earn your salvation. The single uniqueness of the Christian faith is this. It's the exact opposite antithesis of what I've just said. No, you need a savior. You need someone to save you. You know, most of you, I returned from Brazil last week on Tuesday. And oh, it was a long, agonizing flight. Uh, going and coming. I mean, coming home, I was in the city of Recife in the northeast of Brazil, you, know, you have to get to the airport a couple hours ahead of time. You then make the flight from Recife south to Sao Paulo. Sat in the airport for six hours and uh, did this or that or the next thing. And then a big ten and a half hour flight from Sao Paulo to DFW. On that first, so you know what kind of mood I was in when I started that journey. On the first leg of that flight, I sit down pretty near the front of the plane. It's a, it's a good sized plane. Single aisle down the middle. Three seats, three seats. I sit down, aisle seat. And there's this couple, probably in the early 30s, sitting beside me. Nice, smiling. They decide they want to interact. They saw me writing in English. He tried speaking English, realized I spoke Portuguese. They sh soon shifted the conversation to Portuguese. I wish we'd stuck with English because I had no idea where this conversation was going to go. But here's where it went. This guy had been training to be a priest. Disillusioned with the church. Left. His wife had been training to be a nun. This, I know, interesting. I can't share all the details, but it's very interesting. She decided she had enough of the church. She left. They met. They were married. And now they were on this spiritual journey. I got so excited when they had said they left the church. I thought, here we go, evangelical Christians. They've understood justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. No, 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 no. They were very nice. But on they went on this discussion of this spiritual pilgrimage they were on. And, 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 and he began to, to impart to me this, this analysis of comparative religions. And on and on and on it went. And I was sort of lying there on the mat. He was beating me down. Whenever I thought I was getting back up again, his wife would swing in with a couple of... The, very nice, though, the way they did it. But down I was. And all, all this time, all I'm thinking is the uniqueness and the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Comparative religions, what a waste of time. There's nothing to compare. They're all the same. The basic premise is this. Good luck to you you got to do your best. Somehow you've got to do something to earn, merit your way to God. There is no other religion on the face of the earth that offers this, a Savior who has actually fulfilled the law, actually obeyed the law perfectly, doing what we could never do, actually having paid the penalty for the law there upon Calvary's cross. And now this God simply declares, I'm prepared. I am prepared to change the verdict from guilty to innocent. I am prepared. I am willing 
to change the sentence from death to life. Here's what I am willing to do in my tribunal. I am willing to declare before the entire universe that you are now just. You are righteous instead of unrighteous. And here's how it's going to be. This act of justification, this tremendous judicial act, is going to be by grace alone. And it is going to be through faith alone. And it is going to be in Christ alone. That's Paul's three deductions. Now, here's how I spent the better part of this past week. I came up with three deductions of my own based on verses 21 through 31. This text in its entirety. Three deductions which are, are you ready for this? I mean blatantly obvious. Just blatantly obvious. I'm almost embarrassed to say them. But I'm going to say them anyway. Do you know why? These are three of the greatest truths and realities going. And I pray, I've been praying this week, that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this room, this auditorium right now, really get this. These three deductions arising from these verses, and in particular arising, emerging from this glorious truth, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Deduction number one is this. Christ offered, and don't run when you hear this. I'll explain it. Christ offered a penal, P-E-N-A-L, substitutionary, you're on your own, sacrifice. Christ offered, this is deduction number one. Christ offered a penal, substitutionary, sacrifice. What does that mean? Penal. Christ paid a penalty. Substitutionary. Christ paid a penalty on our behalf. Sacrifice. Christ paid a penalty on our behalf to God. You get it. Christ offered a penal substitutionary sacrifice. It's important we be clear on this. It's important we be clear on this for a couple of reasons. Lots of reasons. Oh, let me just limit myself to two. Here's the first. Lots of different theories on the atonement out there today. Lots of different theories of exactly what Christ did upon the cross. These theories usually arise on the basis of what we identify to be our greatest need. Right? So, for example, if I identify my greatest need as to be free from the devil and his minions then I'm going to understand what Christ did on the cross in terms of what's known as the theory of the ransom, the ransom theory. And so what actually happened on the cross was Christ was paying a penalty to the devil. And then he descended to heaven, beat him up, got the keys from him, and then came back up again, and he defeated the devil and all his minions. And that's how a lot of people view the cross. They actually view the cross as something that happened between Christ and the devil and his minions. That's known as the ransom theory of the atonement, And it arises from this idea, this conviction, that our greatest problem are spiritual forces out there. A second theory, oh, i got to limit myself, but here's one that's even more popular today. It's what's known as the moral influence theory. The moral influence theory is simply this. It arises when people identify their greatest need as what? They identify their greatest need as a subjective realization of how much God loves them. Ooh. They think their greatest need 
is a subjective realization, experience, feeling of how much God loves them. Therefore, the purpose of the cross becomes what? The atonement becomes what? It's simply an expression of how special we are, showing to what extent God loves us because Christ died for us. Does that sound familiar? My friends, that's evangelicalism. That's what we see in most movies, evangelical movies we watch. No mention of penal, substitutionary, sacrifice. It's all about we need to come to grips and have a subjective experience and feeling of just how special we are in God's sight. That's called a moral influence theory of the atonement. Now, both those theories, they get confusing because both have an element of truth in there, don't they? That Christ is victor. At Calvary's cross, he did defeat the devil and his minions. But what's the principal uh, purpose of the cross? Yes, the cross is a tremendous manifestation of Christ's love for his people. But it's not actually what's transpiring at the cross. What's transpiring at the cross is this, a penal substitutionary sacrifice. It's bloody It's gory. There we have the Lord Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have the Lord Jesus suffering the penalty for our sin, suffering it as our substitute and offering himself to an offended God. That is what is transpiring and how we must come to grips with this and avoid the confusion so prevalent in our day that as elements of truth, yes, elements of fact, yes, but if not rightly understood, will lead us down the road merrily into the depths of confusion, losing sight of what actually transpired at the cross. It is a penal substitutionary sacrifice. We struggle with that. We struggle with this. I mean, one, one, one modern, and he calls himself an evangelical. He has referred to this as cosmic child abuse. My friend, you have not understood. You do not understand what is happening at Calvary's cross. You do not understand the magnitude of our sin and how it is a holy revulsion to God. You do not understand what is transpiring between Father and Son upon the cross. We struggle with this. We struggle with this because at times when we think of propitiation, this idea of appeasing God's wrath, we have these, this, this false notion of what wrath entails. Why? Because we think in terms of our wrath. We think in terms of our anger. We think in terms of an unbridled experience of rage that we have when we don't get our own way. We transfer that to God, and we think, boy, is that really what's going on at the cross? Is the Lord Jesus somehow turning away the wrath of God? No, what we must grasp is this. Our God is unchangeable. Meaning what? Here's a big word for you. Our God is impassable. He does not experience emotions like we experience emotions. His emotions are not experiences confined to a moment in time, nor are his emotions something that are external to himself, reacting to circumstances that transpire outside of himself. No, God's love is God. God's righteousness is God. God's mercy is God. God's faithfulness is God. God's wrath is God. These aren't, we use the word attribute and we do ourselves a disservice because they're not really an attribute. They are his essence. God is love. God is faithful. God is righteous. God is true. All of these things we label as attributes. We are simply proclaiming who God is. And God does not change in who he is. We change in our experience of him. I think I gave you this illustration some months back. We will talk like this. And you all know what I mean when I speak like this. I got up this morning and I watched the sun rise. Anybody dispute that? No. 
I'm going to go out there this afternoon. I'm going to stare at the sun standing overhead. Any problem? No. Later this afternoon, I'm going to refer, I'm going to say to Allison, look, the sun is now setting on the horizon. You all know what I mean by that. You all agree with me. I just spoke a bunch of gibberish. What do I mean? The sun does not rise. The sun does not stand, nor does the sun set. The sun does not move. It is fixed. We're moving. We are describing the sun as we experience it. God is unchangeable. God is impassable. God is love. He is mercy. He is grace. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is angry. He is wrath. He is holiness. On and on and on and on you go. And on you go. This is who God is in his unchangeable essence. If we approach him as sinners, what do we experience? His wrath. His holiness offended by our sin. If we approach him through his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we experience? His love. There is no wrath. Why? Because the penalty for our sin has been paid. God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation, a penal substitutionary sacrifice. Teresa's going to bring this up for me just quickly. I know our time is going, but I want you to get this. We sang this hymn last week. We're going to sing it again when we conclude in a few moments. And you know, someone please, please correct me if I'm wrong. Those of you who are more familiar with the songs we sing, more familiar with our hymnology, what we describe as our hymnology. But in all my years in the church and all my years of trying to sing, I've concluded that this is, without a doubt, the hymn that expresses most clearly what actually happened upon Calvary's cross. It doesn't speak so much upon the blessings or its effect upon us. It speaks, it tells what actually happened. Look for the three words, not the words themselves, but their concepts. Penal, substitutionary, sacrifice. Think in terms of penal, the payment of a penalty. O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head. Our load was laid on thee. Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead. Didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. That is the payment of a penalty. Penal. Next stanza, Teresa. Think now in terms of substitutionary. Death and the curse were in our cup. We're in God's tribunal. Death and curse. We're judged. We're condemned. But, O Christ, t'was full for thee. Thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup. Love drank it up. Left but the love for me. That is substitution. The third stanza, Teresa. Here we go. Sacrifice. The Father. I think in the original it says Jehovah. The Father lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood, beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. I don't think it gets any better than that in our hymnology. When it comes to celebrating, you can take that away, Teresa. We're going to sing it in a few moments. A penal 
substitutionary sacrifice that God displayed his son publicly as a propitiation by his blood. The second deduction is this that I don't want you to miss. The first again, Christ offered a penal substitutionary sacrifice. Here's the second. We, those of us who claim the name of Christ, we are justified sinners. Okay? That's all we are. That's all we will ever be until glory. We are justified sinners. Do you remember the two requirements of the law? Requirement number one, we must obey it perfectly. Requirement number two, we haven't obeyed it perfectly, therefore we must pay the penalty. Christ has done both. Christ has fulfilled the the law, obeyed it perfectly, and Christ has paid the penalty. When we become one with Christ, what happens? The payment of that penalty becomes ours. And so as far as God is concerned, we died, we were buried, we rose again with the Lord Jesus, and the penalty is paid because we're one with him in God's estimation. Not only that, but Christ's perfect obedience of the law, it too becomes ours. And God reckons Christ's obedience, he reckons Christ's righteousness to be ours. I'm changing the verdict from guilty to innocent. I'm changing the sentence from death to life. I'm now going to declare you righteous instead of unrighteous. Here's how it's going to happen. My son is going to offer a penal substitutionary sacrifice. And when you, become, when you believe in him, you will become one with him. Therefore, because you are one with him in my estimation, I'm now going to judge you in him. He has paid the penalty. Therefore, you have paid the penalty. He has fulfilled the law, therefore I am now going to reckon his righteousness to be your righteousness. That, you know what that makes us? It simply makes us justified sinners. It does not change us. It doesn't alter us. This is forensic. This is outside of us. Sanctification is coming, folks. That's chapter 6. We're not dealing with sanctification. We are dealing with justification. Justification does not change us. It doesn't alter us one iota. What it is, is a tremendous transformation in our legal status. That is our legal standing before God, whereby we are now justified sinners. And the illustration I have used. But you know, I went back through my notes, and I think it's been years, years since I've used it here. Shame on me. The illustration I love is that given by Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, centuries ago, there he is living in Wittenberg or wherever he was at the time. And he goes for a little stroll through the town. We're way back in the 1400s. Takes a little, does a couple loops around the town. And there's little plots of ground here, little farms here, little gardens here. And he notices because you can't miss it. It's ugly to see and the smell is unbelievable. People are collecting manure in piles all through their little gardens and farms, from their goats and cows and sheep and everything else, they will collect these piles of manure. Why? Tremendous fertilizer. And they'll spread it as needs be. But you come to July, and it's almost 100 degrees, and the humidity is unbelievable. You go for that little afternoon stroll after your lunch, and it's a stench. Reeks to high heaven. And then Martin Luther goes to bed one night. We're now in December. And he wakes up, and he opens the wooden shutters on his door, peers outside, and it snowed during the night. Twelve inches of snow. 
and all the countryside and the town and everything he can see, as far as the eye can see, is covered in this beautiful, white, pristine, pure blanket of snow. You can picture it, can't you? Here's the question. What is still lying beneath the blanket of snow? The dunghills are not going away, friend. The dunghills are still there. That is the doctrine of justification. We are justified dunghill. That's my point. If you have a problem with it, come see me afterwards. We are justified sinners. Justification does not change us. Justification alters our legal status standing in the sight of God on the basis of Christ's penal substitutionary sacrifice. We become one with him through faith. Therefore, the penalty is paid in full. And we now stand before God just in his sight because we are clothed, covered with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Here's the third deduction. We fix our eyes on Christ. I looked at it quickly. I went back through and I started in chapter 1, verse 18. You correct me later if I'm wrong. But I started in chapter 1, verse 18, and I read real quickly, skimmed it all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And you know what? I didn't notice once the name Jesus or Christ. It's painful to get through that valley. Chapter 1, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 20, without any mention of Jesus or Christ. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 21, Paul can't stop talking about him. Why? His point is simple. We fix our eyes on Christ. We are riveted with Christ. Christ is the object of our faith. John Bunyan, centuries ago, he was working his way through chapter 3. He'd started in chapter 1, verse 1, and he was having an awful time of it. And he came to verse 24 of chapter 3. He read that phrase, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And John Bunyan was sitting there reflecting on that verse and meditating upon it. And, And he took a pen and he took some paper And he began to use his sanctified imagination. And he said, you know, he wasn't hearing voices. He simply said, look, God is speaking in this verse. And here is what I think he is saying. I'm going to imagine God is speaking to me. And here's here's what God says to John Bunyan. Sinner, you think I cannot save you because of your sin. Behold, my son is beside me. I am looking at him. I'm not even looking at you, and I will deal with you as I am pleased with him. Oh, and the penny dropped. The light went on for John Bunyan. The doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hear this, friend. Please hear this. If you are outside of Christ, those of us who are in Christ, please hear this. Make it your daily food for thought. The only way you will ever be accepted by God. So have your attention. The only way you will ever be accepted by God. The only way you will ever be assured of God's acceptance of you. Is when you heartily say, 
Lord, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at Christ, who stands at your right hand, because I have put all my confidence in him. Great way to conclude. Stands of a song we sing here once in a while. Oh, take it to heart. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness God requires is to feel your need of him. Our Father, we praise you for these precious words. We praise you for these glorious truths. And above all, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is a perfect Savior. He who is indeed sublime in your sight and in your estimation. We look to him this day. We look to him every day as the only hope of salvation. Receive our thanks. Receive our praise as we offered in Christ's matchless name. Amen.